up, Energy Fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Welcome back to this week's episode. I'm here in Zoom land with Josh. It's barbecue time young portfolio manager at Bison Interest, oil and gas investor magazines, 40 under 40 and Twitter space whisperer for all things commodity markets. Josh, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing today? I'm a little poorer today than I was yesterday. But I'm doing <laughs> and again, I'm, I'm not near and deep into the investor part as you are, but they always told me like you don't make money or lose money until you actually sell. So I don't know. Hopefully tomorrow's a different story. You never know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like stairs up, elevator down. But if you do it right, you can end up getting a lot higher and not falling quite as much as you've planned. Right, exactly. So, you know, for the audience, we're recording this. It's November 9th. This will likely get released sometime mid December. But when the market takes a big hit like it did today, like, why is that? And for the audience that's not really into the investor world, but like, can you speak in very generalities? Like, why is all of a sudden oil is climbing, it's at 90, 92, and then all of a sudden, boom, it drops to like, you know, 80. I don't know what it closed at today, 80 something. Like, why does that happen? And why is there so much volatility in the market right now? So there's sort of like a big answer and a small answer. So the small answer is the easiest, which is just that oil has high volatility. And so since it has observable high volatility, it's not so surprising and not so different on any given day for it to go down or up more than other things that are less volatile. That's just sort of the short answer is you should expect for something that is as volatile as oil to have big up and down days. And generally with volatility, you end up with smaller ups and bigger downs. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're in a bull market or a bear market. It's just sort of the tendency of volatile assets. The bigger answer in terms of like what happened today is that, you know, it'll be really interesting. I don't know how this is going to evolve over the next month. There's a crypto exchange that just went insolvent and it looks like hundreds of billions of dollars that people thought they have or that they thought they had in crypto just disappeared in the last 48 hours. So People don't think about these sorts of cross exposures, but you know, when you have a whole bunch of money in one thing and it's levered and whatever, there's going to be some people with money in other stuff. And then you can end up with a contagion. There's a risk that some of that's getting played out. Some of it might be just purely financial. And then there's also the fact that if someone had, let's say a million dollars that they, they thought in crypto, and then they lost access to their account. So they have zero now, they might not take that next trip or drive somewhere or whatever. So it mm-hmm. could actually for oil or for energy, it could actually lead to some amount of decreased demand. And so there's a possibility that was getting priced in too. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Any sort of big change like that ultimately goes, I mean, you can look at it from a supply and demand perspective because ultimately it all ripples down towards energy demand. (laughs) So what you said makes sense. I honestly didn't really thought of that. I saw something this morning on it. It wasn't Binance. It was, or wasn't it related to Binance, the foreign exchange thing or? Yeah. FTX is the, and I'm going to get it wrong. Like they have a coin, but they also have an exchange. And then there's this guy, he was worth like 16 billion or 20 billion, like a week ago, supposedly, and now he's apparently is like filing for bankruptcy. So like very big changes very quickly. And you know, this is like one of the problems, you know, it's sort of a grenade to throw out there, but I think the Federal Reserve really messed up raising rates as much as they did as quickly as they did. And 
one of the ways you can tell is when big things break all of a sudden. And like monetary policy, they'll say it and then they just ignore what it means. But Chair Powell and the other uh, Federal Reserve governors, they'll talk about how monetary policy has an unpredictable and lagged effect where you don't know how big it's going to be. And they have a different word for unpredictable, but essentially they don't know how big of an effect it's going to be and they don't know how long it's going to take. And so really aggressively raising rates as much as they did, as quickly as they did, they know it's very risky. Milton Friedman wrote books and articles and discussed this extensively and they like supposedly study him and then just ignore all that and just YOLO. (laughs) Like (laughs) 4% in interest rates in like a year, which is just astonishingly stupid. So how high do you think they'll actually go with this thing? Like above five? I mean, they're on a trajectory. They're sort of guiding to an ultimate rate close to six. That's sort of like what they're implying right now. I think the forward curve is a little lower than that because people don't really believe that they're going to get there. But again, I think it's less about the absolute rate and more about the path. And I guess like sort of the mechanism, like how big the rate increases are when they do them and then how close together they are. I focus on oil and gas investments, but my background is in economics and history. I'm really interested in history. I loved reading history books as a kid. And it's just so offensive to see people who like know that they're doing something wrong, ignoring the best and brightest minds in the world ever and just doing it anyway. So why do you think that is though? I actually just had someone on the podcast earlier from the Department of Energy. She was with the Department of Energy for 36 years. And we started talking about the SPR, which we all know what's going on there. And so she voiced some, you know, her opinion around all of that. And you know, we got to thinking because like a couple of weeks ago, Biden went on and made some announcement about, hey, we're going to allow oil companies to increase production, but you got to make sure all the money you make has to go towards lowering you know, gas prices for everybody because uh, you know, that's what we're doing here. There's this kind of confusion. It's like, well, he has access to the brightest minds and everything else. And so you wonder, and to your point, like, why do you think all of these, I guess, fundamental signs and things that have you know, been studied and you could pretty much put the writing on the wall as to what's happening, why ignore that and go on this YOLO route anyway? So there is a rule, which is that you should never attribute malice where incompetence would suffice. It's easy to jump to malice, which is that they know what they're doing and they're trying to crash stuff in order to more set more closely centrally plan economies and move things over to a central bank coin and sort of a reserve currency that's uh, digital so they can control, you know, more like the Chinese social credit type controls. So that's like the easy thing to say, right? Because they surely can't be this incompetent. Um, but they did also like lower rates aggressively and only started raising rates after they gave up on claiming that inflation was transitory over a year ago. It feels like there's just like deep incompetence, but that doesn't answer like why. And you know, that is a really good question. And I don't know. I think there's something broken in the education system and in the selection process. Like they technically are well trained. So they technically know what they're doing. They have like brilliant economists working for them who help them figure out what's going on and then they ignore it. So actually the easy way to say it is from an economist perspective is that they have either no incentives or their incentives are not aligned with being successful in their job. 
So maybe if they're unsuccessful as Federal Reserve Chair, they can go be the Treasury Secretary, or they can go be Chairman of PIMCA or BlackRock or whatever afterwards, and they make more money and people respond to money and they get more utility for more money than less. So just pure economist hat on, that's, I feel like the way to explain it. So um, Fair enough. Yeah, maybe let's just stick with that. Yeah, noted. Kind of taking a pivot here. You're joining us from Houston, right? That's where you reside here in Houston. Yep. So did you get to at least partake in some of the Astros festivities? I mean, what a big week for us, right? Yeah. Huge week. It's wonderful. You know, it seems like people are pretty bitter. So I'm from LA originally and I moved out here. Oh, okay. Six years ago. I am an Astros fan. I didn't make it to any of the World Series games, unfortunately. I meant to, and you know, hopefully next year. No kidding. These days, you know, maybe I'm going to jinx it. I think we got a good shot. And people are really like, they get really negative about teams when they win too much. There's allegations of cheating. There's all kinds of like really sketchy stuff. So yeah, I'm very proud of the team. I partook a little bit in celebrations. I didn't make it to the big parade. Yeah. Did you make it? I did. It was an absolute nightmare. Now, granted, the experience is cool. So I have a customer whose office is right on the path and it's on 1100 Smith. I text him Sunday night and I was like, dude, you know, let's have our ops meeting in the morning and then let's experience this. He's like, are you sure you want to come down? He's like, our office is open. We're old school. You know, like hell could be freezing over and we're still going in the office. He's like, if you want to ride the bus with me, he's like, that's what I would do. So, like, okay, whatever. So we hopped on the bus here and Katie ripped down. It wasn't too busy. The bus couldn't figure out how to get to their office. The Metro dropped us off. We walked a few blocks and it was cool. There was a few people on the streets. It was about eight in the morning. Not too bad. Well, come three o'clock, it was just like millions of people. I don't know how many, like it had to have been over a million people downtown, but Aside from the chaos, it was like the energy was awesome. I was probably within eight feet from the parade and it was just like people were going nuts. They were cheering and then, you know, getting to see the Astros and all the floats and stuff. It was definitely a one in a lifetime opportunity. I would not do it again because it took me almost three hours to get out of downtown. But again, it was worth it. I've got great pictures. And to see Altuve look like he had been up for three days binge drinking, you know, totally different than what you see him on TV typically was cool. And of course, Mattress Mac was there. He was just loving life. Yeah, it just and everyone else. It was pretty cool, man. I got to say. That's really cool. It's one of those, there's something you said in there where Altuve, you said looked a lot different in real life. And there's a risk, I think, in life to get too close to your heroes or too close to people that you know everyone respects. And no one's as bad as anyone thinks and no one's as good as everyone thinks. I think there's just, we're all people and some people have extraordinary individual talents and otherwise they're just like you and me. I've gotten to meet various famous people or whatever. And the same sort of idea, like really there's typically like one thing that's unusual about them. And then almost everything else about almost everyone is very similar. That's a great point. It's interesting. Oftentimes you know, I'm sure you've heard it's like, you never want to meet your hero because he may not be, or she may not be as quite on the pedestal as you'd hope that they were, but it was neat to see it. And they deserve all the props. And I don't think, you know, any major issues happened. A few ambulances were running around downtown, but overall it was a great time. So I would imagine, you know, during the glass game there, were you on the grill barbecuing something fancy? I mean, I'm surely you had to have been cooking something real nice. Like, cause from the little bit that I've seen you post on where about it's barbecue time, you like those big slabs of meat, man. Yeah. So it's funny when I moved here to Houston, I told myself I wanted to get a lot better at grilling. I felt like, you know, Texas style barbecue was always my favorite. And I felt like I could figure out how to get better at grilling and also smoking meat and so on. So the night of the game, I actually don't think I grilled anything, but 
last night, partly in celebration for the big win, had a couple of oil and gas industry friends over and I sous vide some ribeyes and then finished them on a smoker that I put in charcoal pellets and it has an opening so you can actually have the flame directly under the meat. And so I was able to sear, smoke and sous vide ribeyes and they came out. I mean, it was Honestly, a lot of the time I cook stuff and it doesn't come out that great, but these were fantastic. I was really- They were the money shot, huh? So is that your go-to, like is ribeye or do you have a go-to meat? Like if you were to just bedazzle someone, like what would your go-to be? I don't know that I have one. I typically don't do filet. I'm sort of like a value guy. So in everything. (laughs) So I feel like you can get a really good ribeye and like enjoy it overall. So maybe I prefer ribeye or really good like New York strip or something like that for a lot more reasonable than a really good filet. And so I think I like it a little more too. So yeah, I'd say ribeye is my go-to. Yeah. It's hard to beat, man. So are you like a specialty meat shop guy or do you just straight up H-E-B or I mean, what does that look like? Yeah, honestly, I think H-E-B, you know, sometimes Kroger too. I know that sounds weird, but I have some clients and friends who are in the ranching business or own large ranches and raise cattle, among other things, or actually one also has a small meatpacking operation and they are, I guess, like preparation. They have like the feedlots, but not the, I think they then send the cows to get slaughtered elsewhere. It's pretty interesting. There were some costs that shot up recently. And like in the last year or so for ranchers raising cows, especially for the grain feed portion where they get fatter. And so you ended up with a bunch of premium cows killed in the last, let's say six months or so to thin the herd because the cost went up. So it's rarely like this. And it's really been like this, let's say over the last six months or so randomly at HEB or Kroger, you'll have like that. You look at the meat counter and there'll be half the steaks are sort of, you know, they're fine, but they're not well marbled. They're not whatever. And then half of them are like close to Wagyu, just ridiculous intramuscular fat. And they're the same price. And so when they're on sale, it's like really exciting to me because if I can go yeah. buy a $30 a pound equivalent ribeye for $5 a pound. I'm in. And yeah, I like it even more because I got a good deal on it. So yeah. Well, you need to make buddies with the butcher so you can get the inside scoop, man. And then you just like get a constant flow of deals coming through the pipeline where you can just host all sorts of parties, man. Are you an entertaining guy? Like, it sounds like you like to bring people over, cook the meats. And I mean, you like entertaining or... Yeah, I think it depends. I really like, you know, some people. And so, (laughs) (laughs) which is just like everyone else, right? I don't know that I want to hang out with everyone, but of the people I want to spend time with and, you know, whether it's that we have shared interests or shared values or whatever, um, it's fun. And I do like to host. I think I enjoy it more, you know, especially when it comes out well. And I take some risks with meat preparation and stuff. And it feels really rewarding when those pay off and things turn out great and you have good friends over and get to enjoy, you something where you did something that for whatever reason came out extra good. That's really rewarding. Yeah. And I promise we'll move off the barbecue topic here, but I just wanted to ask about it. I could tell there's a passion behind it. I was like, well, I got to figure this out, man. So the last question I have, is there a go-to drink while you're on the grill, just, you know, grilling away? Is there like a special cocktail or your beer guy? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. Less specific scotch, beer, wine. I was reading a lot about alcohol recently and I've sort of phased down my alcohol consumption. Just it's highly addictive. It's not so healthy, but I'll still have a drink or two with grilling. Just, it seems pretty healthy. There is one other aspect which ties back to oil and gas, which is, so I got much more public about my grilling about a year ago as the energy crisis was happening in Europe. (laughs) Yeah. So I would grill, I don't know, I'd never really put up pictures or whatever. And then 
you started to see that propane prices were going from like, I think the low was 20 cents a gallon during COVID to they were on a path to over a dollar a gallon for propane. It started as sort of a joke that I was helping with propane demand by grilling on my gas grill. And so it started and it turned out people cared a little less about my thoughts on propane pricing <laughs> and what it meant for oil and gas stocks. And they cared way more about really cool pictures of steaks on grills. So, you know. Yeah, you made a quick pivot, which is totally fine. I had in my notes here, I said, you're helping prop up propane demand by spending quite a bit of time behind the pit there. And that's actually, I think, how I stumbled across It's Barbecue Time, that handle you have, because you had made a comment about it. And I said, what's It's Barbecue Time and propane demand? And I thought it was funny. I was like, oh, that's Josh's other handle. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, then that's too funny. But before we keep going, I do want to remind all the listeners that I'm currently opening up sponsorship opportunities. If any energy-focused companies are looking to increase brand marketing, visibility, and messaging, please reach out. I'd love to work with you. So, Josh, I want to back up a little bit. You mentioned you know, coming from LA. Are you originally from LA or where are you originally from? Yeah. So I grew up in Santa Monica, West LA. And okay. I went to college in Chicago. I moved back to LA for a little bit and then moved out here in 2016. Okay. So is your family all from that part of the world too then? or? Most of my immediate family is in LA as well. Interesting. So do you miss LA? So this is the right time of year to ask that question. The answer is no. (laughs) From about May to October, I miss it dearly because the weather in Houston is quite challenging. But the rest of the year, no, honestly, like I really like Houstonians. I miss my family and it was wonderful to get to spend a lot of time with them. But there's sort of this entrepreneurial and sort of engineering vibe here in Houston. There are so many people that have moved here to do energy-related engineering, other sorts of engineering, and then so many people start companies. And the cost of living here is so low relative to LA and other big cities that you you can go to San Francisco and at least until recently, the Bay Area was also very entrepreneurial. But I feel like Houston is like, it's sort of accessible entrepreneurial. People can start whatever business they want. They can start it here. It doesn't have to just be like a high tech, you know, going to go get venture capital sort of thing. There's lots of, you mentioned Mattress Mac. I think he started his uh, furniture empire here. And there's many people that you'll meet who are involved with that. And then there's also this expectation of humility, which I'm not sure that Houstonians necessarily notice it so much just because they're raised with it. But coming from LA and having lived in Chicago, which Chicago is a little bit like this too, but like the value system, I think generally the societal expectation is that you are polite and humble other than on the road, you know, the traffic is insane and people drive crazy. But when you're not driving, the expectation is that you're polite to people and that you act in a humble and down to earth way. And I really resonate with that. I really like, it makes it more fun to meet random people. And I've definitely found like my people here. Wow. No, that is super cool. And so do you ever, I mean, obviously with you being so heavily invested in oil and gas, and, and I mean, arguably with what you do, perhaps you could probably live in a lot of different places, but being here in the heart of you know everything happening, it makes sense. But do you ever suspect you would leave Houston even while you're still involved with what you're doing or is Houston home for the foreseeable future you think? So I have a really good friend who lives in Puerto Rico and there's something the tax about- benefits. Yeah, there's something about paying no taxes, <laughs> right? Zero federal income tax that's really appealing. And, you know, maybe I'd be in Puerto Rico for six months and a day and then Houston the rest of the time. I don't know. Yeah, split your time, man. Yeah, so that's possible. But otherwise, no, I think Houston's wonderful and I'm very excited. I feel like the city has really been held back 
during this mm. long oil downturn that we experienced. And there's just so much vibrancy. It's a very diverse city. There's so much great food and it's still so cheap. I mean, it's really, even with higher interest rates and everything, it's just this great place. And yeah, the weather sucks in the summer, but otherwise nowhere is perfect. And I think sure. Houston is a bright future. For me, I'm originally from Canada, born in Calgary, raised close to Vancouver, you know, aside from you know the mountains and the outdoors and even the weather up there is beautiful, especially close to Vancouver, where I grew up, you know, it's West Coast, similar to say Northern California-ish. Houston for us has been good. I mean, I'm on the oil field service side. So here it's like the tippy top of oil and gas and energy for that matter. I mean, a lot of people don't realize like just the amount of, you know, the energy mix, even just within Texas. And, and a lot of the headquarters are here in Houston. So pursuing, you know, medical and energy. And one thing I do appreciate it, and there's a lot of people like, oh, I, living in other cities that are in oil and gas. I think Houston has the most diversity from, you know, just career opportunity perspective. The people come from all over the world, you know, to supplement what you're saying is like, when I came here, I didn't think we'd be here that long, but the longer we're here, two kids, you know, family, this and that, it's like, okay, this could definitely be home for the future. And I think the future for Houston in itself, like you said, I keep seeing whether they rank cities or opportunities or cost of living. There's been a ton of people moving from outside of Texas into Houston, Austin, these areas. But Houston just in itself, like you said, it's kind of been a diamond in the rough for so long. And I don't know if it's like the cyclical nature of oil and gas. It's kind of, you know, it gets a little spark, but then it dies off and it gets a little spark and then it dies off. Hopefully that spark stays lit now for the foreseeable future, especially with this, I mean, again, sort of long bull run that I think we're experiencing or about to, hopefully it props it up for a good enough time to really see the true potential of Houston's future. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a good chance that we have a long bull run. I think there's a good chance that hopefully <laughs> your employer doesn't kill me for saying this, but comp should go up a lot for oil field services and for oil and gas companies in general, the people need to get paid more because there's a massive people problem. There's not enough people and a lot of stuff. And we need way more rigs running. We need way more, not as many, but more pressure pumping, frack stacks going on. We need a bunch of other services and fabrication and just the whole value chain is, has been eviscerated. So, And then we need more engineers. We need more petroleum engineers and geologists and planners on the EMP side. Again, just that whole value chain has been eviscerated as well. And so you know, the way you get people into your industry is you pay them more. And historically, oil and gas did that in bull markets. And I think it's about to get interesting. And then when you think about what that means for the city, I mean, Houston could do really well at a time, which historically has happened at a time when other cities and other places maybe haven't done as well. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, you bring up a good point and and I was going to bring this up, but we're already on the topic is talking about, you mentioned paying people well. And that's for me, when I got out of high school, it was either go back to school or go work drilling rigs. And I went and worked drilling rigs and I made way more than any of my buddies could even imagine, you know, unless they'd gone and followed the same path I did as an 18 year old making $75,000 a year was amazing. You couldn't do that anywhere else. What I see happening now, and, and I talk to quite a few drilling contractors, I'm tied to operators just through my job, is now they're not in a position to be able to pull people and wave these huge paychecks in front of them because quite honestly, like they can't afford to pay them because they're already operating on thin enough margins. Operators are like, hey, you know, we understand you guys want to make more money, but just because oil is up doesn't mean we're going to be just pay these obnoxious day rates. So I say that to say the people aspect is extremely challenging. Like 
talking to you know someone at a major drilling contractor, they say, we're even offering incentive programs for people to bring people on. But the reality is, is we can't a lot of times pay them above what they could make, say at McDonald's and have these kids having like a side hustle on your phone. You could literally get a job working in the city, making a decent wage, and then make a little bit of internet money. And you can make just as much as a rig hand driving to West Texas, working six months a year. That's the unfortunate truth. And so I don't know what the solution is to that. I know what contractors would like to get their day rates. And I know what operators are willing to pay for these day rates. And like I was talking to one of the larger EMP independents today, the wells manager, and he said, we're flat or dropping rigs in the next six months. He's like, because these inflationary pressures, we can't take it. And drilling contractors, they just want to try and rake us and we're not doing it. We're just going to drop rigs. And it's like, okay, well, that's where we're at. All it's going to do is increase oil prices if we can't drill enough wells to maintain production. So we're in this weird pickle right now. Where do you see it going? Yeah. So I think very high level oil is undersupplied relative to world demand. And we're in this sort of weird quasi-recessionary time, certainly recession in certain parts of the world where demand is suppressed. Also, China is at least partially locked down. And so we're in this time where even with all that, we're still undersupplied and inventories are dwindling rapidly and services capacity has sort of hit a wall, right? Like it's pretty hard to bring on an additional rig. It's almost impossible to bring on another frack stack. One of my friends at the barbecue last night, he was telling me about they were looking for a workover rig and they couldn't get one. (laughs) It just wasn't, I think for the part of Texas they were trying to do, it just, everything was booked out for six months and I couldn't believe it. And so I spent some time today talking to a couple of different CEOs, oil field services companies, and they validated that, you know, things have gotten very tight, not everywhere, but in certain markets for workovers, along with various other equipment that you wouldn't expect. Pricing has skyrocketed on certain things like you're describing. And so What I think ends up resolving all of this is much higher oil prices. And maybe you have a disappointment on production that sends prices higher, or maybe prices just go higher because the market's already undersupplied and the SPR release ends and you just have higher prices. There's different paths to it. But in the end, you have higher oil prices, which lead to higher oil field services margins and much higher oil field services compensation. And it's just ludicrous that you can make as much at McDonald's as you can working on a dangerous, high value add job on a drilling rig. And that's just clearly, obviously unsustainable. And the way that gets resolved is through much higher wages. And it might sound weird because a lot of what I do is invest in upstream oil and gas companies, but I do also have services exposure. And I prefer companies with a lower corporate decline rates. So that way they're able to, you know, if a company is declining by, let's say 10% a year without reinvesting, they're going to need services a lot less than a company that's declining 40% a year if they didn't reinvest. So, you know, a typical shale company might be declining 30 or 40% a year. So they have to spend a lot of the money they make just drilling to sustain production. So I'm sort of positioned for this, but also like it's already starting to happen. And in every other cycle, this is how it's played out with different tempos and different things going first. But in the end, this just means that you probably have much higher prices and you have an absolute boom here in Houston. Yeah. Well, I certainly hope so. If you kind of go up, you know, and take a 30,000 foot view of your experience since coming to Houston, you know, being heavily involved with investing in oil and gas, you got bison interest. Do you have any core beliefs around energy that you've changed your mind on over the last few years? Or is the conviction that you've had since the get, you know, still strong? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is that 
I'm increasingly sure that we've run out of cheap oil. So we're not at, so I have like Twilight Desert in the background. Like, I don't think we're at peak oil necessarily, but I think we're at peak cheap oil. And so, you know, will we have downturns in the future in oil and gas? Probably. But even with downturns, I mean, one of the things you notice in many cyclicals is that you have higher lows and we haven't really experienced higher lows for oil in a while. And I think this next long period of time that we're going to experience this oil bull market, I think we're going to see increasingly higher when oil prices crash. I don't think they crash to 20 or 10 or negative. I think they crash to 60 or 70 and then go much higher. And then they crashed a hundred and go much higher. And I'll point to, I guess I have like two props. I got my like Twilight Desert and I've got my WTI (laughs) 250 hat. But I think the WTI 250 hat is going to age like the 10K Dow hat where it was ludicrous when people came up with it. They were like, there's no way the stock market's going to go that high. And I think the Dow got to 30,000 or or over it recently. I don't know, some number way, way, way higher than that. And I think there's just this tendency for things to overshoot and a tendency, especially for commodities where there is an active market and it's really hard for policies to affect it too much in the short term. And it's really hard for almost anything to knock it off a trajectory if there's massive undersupply and a huge decline rate that needs to get overcome just to even grow production a little. I think there's a good chance that we end up with much higher oil prices to the point where we're at prices that no one can talk about without sort of laughing or smiling because they just sound so ridiculous. Wow. I mean, so are you talking like two, $300 or are you talking even beyond that? Yeah. I mean, look, I think there's a good shot that we get over 200 and I don't know when exactly, but every other cycle and almost every other cyclical, you end up with cyclicals getting to all-time high inflation-adjusted prices. And so if you look at, I mean, oil got to roughly 150 in 2008 and things cost almost twice as much today as they cost then. So, you know, I know that's like not the exact math and there's a lot of complexity around oil price models and none of this is precise. It's more just observing the general trajectory towards increasing undersupply, observing the labor challenges like Mm -hmm. we talked about, and then observing the lack of exploration and the very limited number of sort of new discoveries that we've seen in the last five years. There's just not new oil fields. So we were talking about this last night too. I mean, there's just not, you need more discoveries. You need more fields to be able to go throw a hundred rigs at them and get production up. (laughs) They don't exist. So, you know, that's a problem. And I want to pivot after this, but what are your thoughts on like tier one acreage? Because you said peak of cheap oil, or I guess, you know, less expensive oil for that matter. Do you feel like operators are kind of looking down the road here and scratching their heads? Like, where are we going to get, you know, some of this good acreage from? I would expect a lot more consolidation happens because of it. But is that a conversation or something that you pay attention to very much or? Yeah. I mean, it's a huge driver of how I'm investing as well as sort of what's happening in the oil market. So, so far this year, you've seen multiple operators miss their oil production guidance. So EOG missed, Devon missed. You can look at also the Katera missed as well on the gas and and oil side. You can see the well productivity across a number of big operators who theoretically have huge land plots. So like Chevron, for example, Chevron's 2022 wells actually look a lot worse than you'd think. 
and they're performing worse than their, let's say, 2020 or 2019 wells, even though in theory, when you look at operators who have lots of theoretically core unconventional acreage, you'd think that they would have it. Or you know, Pioneer also, their wells were getting more gassy and their oil cuts have come down actually quite a bit this year. And it's not to pick on any one of those and it's not a recommendation on their stocks or anything. It's just sort of this general, the point of throwing out these high-performing, large cap and mid cap companies is that this is a real trend. It's pretty significant and it's already starting to happen. And part of what we're seeing is these companies are essentially admitting that they're running out of core land. And so they're starting to, one of the ways to do that is just to start drilling your tier one and tier two stuff now. And there's different explanations and different reasons why these companies might do that. But the simplest explanation is that they see the writing on the wall. And so they're trying to expand their reserves and their inventory by not only drilling their core stuff. And then you can also see it in transactions, right? So you look at the Marathon deal and the Eagleford, where they bought something for billions of dollars, the Devon deals, the Diamondback deal, which actually I think was sort of the most problematic of that set. And then similar deals in Canada, where there's just There's more inventory up there, but I think there are some real questions around some of these transactions. And so all of that together, basically, there's a lot of different indicators that were getting to peak well productivity and that were starting to drill non-core. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Our our friends over at the EIA, I think it was like maybe two months ago, I saw, I was reading them part of their daily energy news things and they had each basin's well productivity, I think over time. And it's now starting to decline like in like every basin. It was like, none of them were better performing now than they were last year. And it was kind of interesting. And when I asked one of my customers about it, who drills primarily in the Delaware basin, and they were like, well, we're not seeing that. But again, maybe, you know, they're one-offs or maybe they just, they know, but they don't, whatever the case is, I would kind of add to your point is like, that was kind of an interesting sort of data set to look at across the board. It wasn't just like one part of the Delaware. It was like the Permian, the Eagleford, the Bakken, the Midcon. And it was like everywhere. I was like, holy smokes, like kind of concerning, or at least makes you kind of question like, okay, then what are we planning to do about it? And kind of sounds to your point, like we're going to have to figure something out. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one reason to be really sort of data oriented and not narrative oriented. So it sounds like I'm just sort of waving my arms and saying, oh yeah, oil's going higher because of this and that, whatever. But there's a ton of analysis that goes into it. And our analysis at Bison, what we're doing is trying to figure out what's right, not like propaganda, not, oh, oil's going up because of whatever. It's, hey, there is this thing and it's a real problem. So you could tell the well productivity stuff six months ago. Now it's sort of better known. You know, various like journalists will call me up and then I think they like don't like some of the stuff, my critiques of energy policy. So they won't quote me. I mean, I was in Barron's once, which was really great. And I'm really appreciative of them having done that, but not Barron's, but others will call me up, try to better understand stuff. And then six months after we write a white paper, they'll rewrite something we did almost exactly, not quote us and, you know, repeatedly. I mean, you can literally like go through our white papers and then look for wording, look for the thesis and it's in all these news articles. And it's funny because even then they still don't understand what they're saying. And so you you talk to some (laughs) of them and you share a thesis on like well productivity and you tie it to like an article they wrote about drilled uncompleted well counts depleting, which sort of piggybacked off our work and several others. But, you know, again, like generally the citations are not tied to where the analytics were done or came from. It's remarkable. So 
were used to receiving the truth, right, from people who gather, process, and disseminate that without really understanding it. And so, you know, when you play that sort of game of telephone, you can end up with lots of bad information. And that makes operators feel comfortable saying things that aren't true. So almost every operator is a top tier operator based on them. And then almost every operator thinks that their wells aren't, they're not experiencing productivity declines, but then you look at the data and they're experiencing productivity declines. So again, that's just like a long-winded way of saying, I think my bet is that that operator, whomever it was you've asked, is also experiencing productivity declines and they either don't know it or aren't willing to admit it. Sure. I would tend to agree there. So a lot of what we're talking about is, you know, educating and making sure that we're doing our part, you know, by Bison publishing your guys' white papers, which is great. You know, I've read several of them, but I'm curious for you personally, let's talk about content creation because you came out again, you may have been active on Twitter at some point, but then you really doubled down on it. And so I'm curious if you could kind of share the reasons and what the experience has been like maybe some things that surprised you with putting yourself out there for as much as you do now and just the volume of the stuff you put out. Just kind of share that. I'm really curious. So we had held back on doing an active social media program until our largest investor was a large university endowment and they pulled their money in November, 2020 over our like significant objections. We objected more than, I mean, it's your client's money. So when they want it, they get it. But you know, we were giving it to them, but in the process saying, hey guys, like wait six months, here's our top three stocks and here's sort of where they're going. And you know, they were up enormously, even though they pulled and sold all that stock, it looked like over that time. So it was very frustrating and sort of experiencing that as well as having felt like there was some obstacle to being more active on social media, just sort of accepting that institutional investors weren't likely prospective clients. And none of this is a solicitation or anything. I'm just trying to explain sort of what, what their thought process was. So frustration along with sort of being more allowed to do it and there being sort of fewer negative ramifications from being more active. And then there was sort of one other aspect of it, which was at the beginning of 2017, I joined the board of a public company and then shortly after became chairman. And it was a company that had been a multi-billion dollar public company and they had significant assets and significant land in Canada. And here I was at the time living here in Houston and you know, became chairman of the board of what it was a multi-hundred million dollar, well, I guess it was a hundred million dollar company when I joined, but it had been a billion dollar company the year before. And is a pretty interesting story. And no one cared and no one talked about it. And no one knew, basically. Like people in Calgary knew, kind of, but everyone else didn't know. And so I came in, there was a sale process going on that was a mess. And there were all kinds of conflicts and messes and whatever. I negotiated a sale sort of separately from this whole thing, but we found a good buyer for some assets, ended up selling the company in that time. So I can't talk about my investment strategy performance, but I can talk about this particular company since I was the chairman of it. So I joined, the stock was at 70 cents and we ended up selling the company for like 85 cents a share. Over that time, the average company in the area we were in, in the Motney, was down about 50%. So in the investment world, variant returns are sort of what you care about. And so we delivered a positive roughly 20% return over 18 months versus our peers, the peers of that company being down 50% on average in that time. And we sort of sandbagged for that too. The average companies of that size were actually down about 70% in that time. 
So did really, really well. No one cared. No one talked about it. There's been no, like, you know, there were a few articles about it, it selling, but, you know, put like a year and a half of my life into the thing, delivered an enormous outsized return and silence. So at some point, if no one's going to talk about what you're doing, you might as well. And then it's less about ego. Like I kind of don't care. Sometimes people really want like their name in the newspaper and whatever. And my dad has this thing where he likes to joke that he has two goals in life to be wealthy and anonymous and he's halfway there. Okay. So I kind of am with him, but I want to do that again. I want to go find another company, which I may have found already and go try to get control of it. And that's hard. They don't always just let you on. Sometimes you ask and they say no, and then you have to can own a lot of stock and they still fight you. And people didn't know that we had delivered this enormous outsized return at Ironbridge, the company I got control of. And so it's really helpful to have a platform and have people know that at the very least, I'm not an idiot and that there's various sort of external validation of how I've done with different things, as well as having a reasonably coherent view on oil and gas, as well as on you know both the industry, as well as on specific companies. I guess it's sort of a long way of explaining, like basically, I think that there are really interesting opportunities, some of which require sort of name recognition and a following. That's the sort of business reason to be very active and to build as big of a following as fast as possible. Yeah. I always encourage people, like I'm big on creating content and allowing content to essentially be your content strategy is essentially your communication strategy. And if you're not creating content and creating awareness around your initiatives, you essentially can become irrelevant. And you know, obviously there's people who debate that, but at the end of the day for yourself is you're trying to build that reputation and remain active and position yourself as an expert to where then People know who you are. They know what you stand for. They know your track record. I encourage a lot of people to do that. So the question I have is like, do you ever get to a point where there's people say either calling you out or do you have any trolls? And if so, how do you handle the negativity? And I would imagine you stay the course because you ultimately have a vision and you probably don't let all the BS and noise get you off track. And maybe you do, I don't know. But like, how do you handle a lot of the negativity that comes along with putting yourself out there? Because ultimately, once you start winning... People are going to try and knock you off. And if they haven't, well, then good for you. You've done that part well. Yeah. So it gets back to, look, we're all human. And there's usually something, even if you're enormously successful, there's usually like one or two things that you've done better or different than everyone else. And everything else is the same pretty much. And so, yeah, like it is impossible to be called names repeatedly and experience sort of all the negative stuff that people will do, especially anonymously on social media without feeling it, right? Like it's impossible to not sort of have emotional and other sort of negative repercussions. So my take on it initially was to argue vociferously and just on stuff that I thought was right. I would just say, I am right for these reasons and listen carefully to what people who often had ill intentions would put forward and just address them. And what I realized over time was one, so a couple of those worked out spectacularly well. And it didn't matter. Those people continued to misbehave and others sort of jumped on their train. So like, for example, Sandridge, there were a few people who were short the stock and publicly talked about it. They were short oil and gas stocks towards the end of 2020. They'll say they didn't, but you know they're on video like this talking about how they did it. So um, you know either they were lying then or they're lying now, but whatever. They you know made these claims and whatever and talked about how this one company, Sandridge, was going bankrupt 
they were arguing it was going bankrupt at 70 cents and had already gone bankrupt. So they were arguing it was going to go bankrupt again. And it looked like they had some sort of like personal issues with it. They had been fired by the company or the company pre-bankruptcy had whatever. Companies go through bankruptcy because they have all kinds of problems. When they come out of bankruptcy, they're completely different than when they got in. And in this case, there was different people running it. Anyway, the stock went from 70 cents to $1.70 where I shared my investment thesis, sent it out to our whole like email list on Bison, put it on Seeking Alpha. I mean, just fully out there. And people hated it, talked about how I was like promoting a stock, which was weird because they weren't issuing stock. Like it's not like it mattered. The path, the share price in between then and now hasn't mattered at all. They haven't bought back stock and they haven't issued any. And the stock has gone from $1.70 to even after it was down 10% today, along with a bunch of other oil and gas stocks, it's around, it's like just under $20 a share. So you'd think that people would say, okay, these guys that were saying that it's bankrupt and a fraud and whatever, I mean, also Carl Icahn that controls the board. So they're probably not lying about their cash balance or the assets that they have just like he's a multi-billionaire. There's no benefit to him and having his people involved and owning a fraud. So that's clearly not true. You have this thing, it's a 10X, a 12X, whatever. You think people would just step back and say, oh no, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And you don't get that. So what I learned from that was that there's just a set of people who are misbehaving in order to get attention in order to whatever. And you just have to disengage. And so- yeah. It's hard and it's disappointing because like you really want to have positive assumptions about people. You always want to not attribute malice and sometimes malice is intentional and that's it. I think like one of the things I'll do is just on Twitter, like block people. And it's a very, very small percentage of people who have whatever it is, whether they're promoting their sort of like Bitcoin scam or whether they're doing some drilling scam or doing whatever it is, there's usually some angle that they have and it's unfortunate, but there's different ways to market those things. And one of them is to go sort of like you were saying, be a troll. So it's very hard to totally ignore that sort of thing. And so there's fortunately ways built into that to reduce the amount of negativity. And I think like what I described there was negative, but there's a really beautiful positive aspect where there were people who bought Sandridge, which I wasn't telling people to buy it. I was just sharing why I owned it at that Mm -hmm. price who bought it at $1.70 when I talked about it and made fantastically enormous amounts of money for their retirement or their kids or whatever. And that's really cool. And so when you have that sort of positive impact, I think it's nice. And I think just sort of navigating, being a content provider, sharing ideas, I think if you can navigate it well, you can experience a lot of the positives and reduce the negatives. And I think staying sane, doing that requires reducing the negatives. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And so I'm curious, I know you engage with certain folks a lot of times within you know Twitter, but there's someone when you got into the space that you looked up to was like, they do a great job. They handle themselves professionally. I mean, do you have anyone that you kind of like idolize within the content creation space? They're not really idolized, but like really like they set the standard and it was something that I could look forward to to a degree. Yeah. So I don't know if I like idolized, but definitely like he was successful with his social media to the point where also he went active on a company and his social media following was helpful to him and his blog following was helpful to him in terms of having success with his activism. My friend uh, actually in Puerto Rico, uh, Harris Kupperman. And so was doing it before I was doing it and was really successful with it. And again, I think it was observing the success on the activism side, as well as observing sort of 
his navigation. And, you know, people dislike him for various reasons too. And there's a whole set of people who were really mean or obnoxious or whatever. And I think he does a good job of navigating that too. And that sort of combination of blocking or ignoring or whatever. And I think my biggest takeaway from him is to not try to like hide who you are. And, you know, there's a certain amount of filter that you apply to anything to be effective, but to not overly filter out of some sort of imaginary idea that there's some, like, you don't want to break the law or anything, but you don't want to care necessarily if you happen to share a political view or happen to share whatever, like people respect you more if you're a real person than they do if you're a fake buttoned up, I'm a fund manager who, whatever. I think that was really my model for it. And I think so far, so good. Awesome. It sounds like it's gone well. Well, look, I know we're up against the hour here and I do want to respect your time, but quickly before we close out, what's the elevator pitch on Bison interest? Obviously you own your own company that probably takes up a lot more time maybe than Twitter does. But if you could just explain you know, who you guys are, what you offer, and people are interested to hear more where to go for that. So I actually, <laughs> I'm not supposed to do that because I can't publicly offer my fund, but I can tell you what I do, which is I run a public equity fund where we invest in publicly traded oil and gas companies, mostly upstream, but also midstream and services. There's all kinds of rules around that. So none of this is a solicitation or an offering or anything of that sort. The goal of this is to help educate. And then secondarily, to the extent that we do go active on companies, there's nothing around any of these sorts of communications that's problematic in terms of ahead of time sharing how I think about investing, how I think about the world so people can better prepare for if they want for me to be chairman of the board of the next company to hopefully have a up 20% versus down 50% sort of outcome. So it's sort of a weird thing, right? I have no real ask, just like, you know, try to listen and hopefully people who like to earn money will vote in favor at whatever point, you know, subject to whatever's in a proxy and that's it. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. That was a great answer. I think you covered all bases there to protect yourself. So you should be good. I was really just curious to make sure that, because I mean, it's public knowledge that your chief investment officer, I believe is what it is at Bison Interest. And so I wanted to make sure we plug that as well. Well, Josh, thanks again for joining us. So what I'll do is I'll put the links in the show notes to your Twitter handle, you know, your LinkedIn, and then I'm sure everyone could follow along and just educate themselves and really enjoy the content you put out. And again, so thank you for everything you do, the time. I don't know how you keep up with it, man. It's like every time I open Twitter, it's like it's just Josh is pumping out all sorts of stuff. Man. I don't know where, where you find time to do anything else, but uh, you do a great job managing it. And so thanks for everything you do. And yeah, so we'll share this. It'll be probably mid to end of December. But again, Josh, any closing last words to the audience before we close out here, buddy? Sure. Just the last thing. So the bison is the only animal that when there's a storm, it faces into the storm and it gets through it safer and faster. And so I think like for investing as well as just in life, like when you find an obstacle, you want to face it and you want to deal with it and not sort of avoid it. I love I that. Really good. I've got the bison in the background, uh, third prop. And <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, Ryan Holiday wrote a book. I don't know if you're familiar. It's called Obstacle is the Way. So it aligns well with you and bison. And so all the listeners out there, thanks so much. And if you are looking to sponsor the show, reach out. I'd love to connect. And until next time, always remember that everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or in getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.